So welcome everyone. Tonight's week four of the introduction class. So we're already halfway through the course. And as I mentioned last week, the instructions in a way get progressively more subtle. So uh, each time we sit, you know, we we're usually able to notice the obvious things like the pain in the knee or the disturbing sound. Sometimes we're able to notice the uh, kind of emotion or attitude. But it's not so easy to see thought independent of the content, to see thought as a phenomena, a mental phenomena. I mean, we can notice, oh, I just thought about a pink elephant. But can we notice the thought as just a thought? That's not so easy. And so, just like when I move my arm, I can know that experience of moving my arm. But can we know the experience of the mind moving? Gil Fransdell, one of the teachers from the West Coast, talks about like uh, when we're thinking, in a way, it implies that we're involved or identified with the thoughts. So he likes to use the word thoughting. This idea that the mind, the conditioned mind, its habit is to just almost, if not continuously, projecting, putting out thoughts. So that's the thoughting. They're just thoughts, little blips of mental energy. And no matter how dramatic our thought is, like we could have the thought that an asteroid at 9.05 tonight will strike the Earth and destroy all life. And that's a pretty dramatic thought. But... The content is quite dramatic, but the thought itself is pretty ephemeral. You know, having the thought that an asteroid is going to strike the Earth, what is that thought? And you see, as soon as we stop projecting it, it's gone. So we really want to get a sense of this because when we get caught by the content of our thoughts, well, we're basically living in that box or that reality. But if we can learn to see thoughts as just thoughts, there's a lot of freedom, a lot of liberation in that. I mentioned a couple times already, I believe, when people brought up their own sort of noticing the amount, the power, the seductiveness of their thoughts, that there's a basic... Uh, strategy and practice. Um, I mean, the first strategy when we're noticing a lot of thoughts is just to notice that they're just thoughts. So to take the uh, attention that's fixating on the content, and in a sense, we're sort of having a deeper or broader understanding or, uh, or awareness, that's just a thought. It's just a mental phenomena that we call thought. And it's like this. So we're actually noticing the ephemeral quality of the thought. But if that doesn't work, if the thoughts are seductive, we are getting caught or identified with them, then there's a basic strategy that's important to remember, and it'd be nice to try it tonight during the, the guided sitting time, which is to notice that the mind is caught in thought, to notice the emotional tone behind the thoughts. Like, are the thoughts being driven by a feeling of excitement, anticipation? 
are these thoughts being driven or propelled by some aversion, some fear, some irritation, boredom or doubt? Or, you know, there are many different sort of emotional tones behind the thoughts. And even sort of nonsensical thoughts or thoughts that don't seem to be much about anything, they're often about just being a little bit bored. You know, it's just like we're throwing mental content out into the space of awareness to try to entertain ourselves. It's like we're willing to throw anything out there to just see if, we, if something could be captivating for the mind because the mind is in the habit of being captivated and when it's not captivated, we feel a little out of sorts. But we can notice the feeling tone or the emotional tone and then, and then more specifically notice whether that emotional tone is pleasant or unpleasant. And this is a very powerful basic strategy we can use over and over again. And it really is about moving from gross to subtle. So the gross, in a sense, the most concrete or gross aspect of the thought is the content. I'm thinking about my wife and what she did today. I'm thinking about my job and why that person did this. But then, if we look a little bit more closely with, a, with eyes that aren't getting caught in the content, we'll see I'm feeling a little ashamed. I'm feeling a little irritated. I'm feeling a little needy. And then we look a little closer at the neediness, for example, and we see this is painful. It hurts like this. So we're really tuning in right to the essence of this thought, which is it hurts. Something is hurting right now, right here. Not theoretically it hurts, but right in the moment it hurts. That's the key. So we go from the content that seems to be, when we have content like somebody yelled at me today and it wasn't fair, that content seems to have like, it's a universal truth. It's not about this moment. But when we go when we go from there to, I'm angry, then it gets much more about this moment, because I'm angry now. I'm angry, and anger's like this, it's here now. And this anger is painful. See, we're kind of being drawn right into the moment when we go from content, emotion, to the feeling of pleasantness or unpleasantness of whatever that thought and emotion is. And then that's our anchor for attention. So. During the sit tonight, let's try to do that backwards stepping a couple times. So, of course, we're, we're going to practice the same way. We're going to be here with the body, with the breath moving in the body. And then we'll notice the mind's wandered and we'll come back to the body, connect with the breath in the body, have this intention to sustain attention with the inhalation, with the exhalation, with the next in-breath. But then, and we might have minutes of real calm and sustained attention, steadiness with that practice. But then all of a sudden, a memory might arise or some thought might arise and we'll come back and we get drawn back. It's like it has its hooks. We've bitten the bait, so to speak. And even though we're doing this dance of coming back to the body or coming back to the breath, the mind very quickly, the attention very quickly gets drawn back to the content. Then at that point, Simply acknowledge to yourself, oh, the mind is caught, the mind is identified with this, these thoughts, and it's like this. So just this like statement of honesty, uh, honest statement, you know, the mind is caught. 
And it's nice to say, to, uh, to depersonalize it. Don't say, I'm caught. Because what you know is the mind is caught. The I is hypothetical. We don't know. Like, what do we mean, I'm caught? What we know is this mind is caught up, is attracted, is identified, is attached to returning to these thoughts, spinning, digging into these thoughts. So then do that mindful analysis that I just mentioned. Where, so you're not pushing the thought away. You're not trying to get back to the breath now. You're just aware of the thoughts, and you're interested. You're bringing this wholesome interest not into the content of the thought. You're not asking, like, why am I thinking this? That's not the question. You're asking, what else is happening with these thoughts? Like, so there's this content spinning in the mind. But how does the heart feel as the mind is replaying these thoughts or images? Oh, I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling irritated. I'm feeling ashamed. I'm feeling excited and hopeful. I'm feeling happy. So no preconceived ideas. You're actually looking at the emotional tone in the heart in the present moment, in the mind in the present moment. And then as you tune into the emotion, tune into whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. So certainly every one of us has suffered, right? So how do we, when we're suffering, how do we know we're suffering? I know it sounds obvious. But it's really good to get clear, like, how is it that we know when we're suffering that we're suffering? Or when we're happy and we know we're happy, how do we know we're happy? What is the actual experience in the mind or heart that we call happiness, we call stress or unhappiness? So this is that backward step from the mental content to the emotional tone to the feeling of pleasantness or unpleasantness. This hurts. This feels good. I'm not sure if it feels good or hurts, right? So sometimes it might be like neutral. If you're not sure yet, you're, the mind's not clear enough. Is this slightly unpleasant or slightly pleasant? And you just stay looking until you have some sense. And if you don't have a sense, then just call it neutral. This is a neutral experience and it's like this. And something might start being very painful and move toward neutrality. Or very pleasant and move toward neutrality. You just see. Don't anticipate it. And then when it's no longer charged, then just come back to the basic training. Because being with the body or being with the breath in the body, that's where we develop both of those qualities of greater degrees of alertness, greater degrees of tranquility or calm. And that will help us, this balanced, bright, relaxed mind, will really help us not be so caught in thought and help us do those backward steps where we see the emotional tone, feel the tune in to open up to the pain or pleasantness of the emotional tone. So it's like a deconstruction. We're normally just on the surface playing with the content of our thoughts. And we're deconstructing that drama, that self-centered drama, right through the emotion, right to whether it's painful or pleasant in the mind to be having these thoughts. Any questions about being mindful or practicing mindfulness of thoughts? And remember, you don't have to do that analysis. That's, you use that analysis when the thoughts are very seductive or sticky. Otherwise, if you're just there and you're feeling pretty present, 
and you notice all of a sudden you've been lost in thought. Just a simple acknowledgement, oh, thoughts, or thoughting, or thinking, you know, so just, you can name it. And if you have a, if it has a particular style of thoughts, like judging, or planning, or worrying, or remembering, you can just say that instead of thinking, oh, remembering is like this. You know, you just acknowledge it, and then you come back. You just land or drop or soak back into the present moment experience of the body. And then right there, finding the breath and the body, and, and just doing those, the basic push-ups of mindfulness practice. Connecting, and then with the intention to sustain the attention through the full in-breath, without any gaps. And then through the full exhalation. But when we do get drawn into distraction... We don't get angry, we don't judge. We just notice that. If we can, we come right back. If we're finding ourselves there over and over again, then we might turn our full attention to the distraction. Let it be the meditation for a while. So we're actually meditating on what's distracting the mind, what's disturbing the mind. Okay? Good, so unless anybody has any questions, feel free to stretch out so you'll be comfortable sitting for about 30 minutes. Always feel comfortable finding the right cushion for you, whatever works. It's nice to see the process of settling into your posture as a beautiful and simple act of kindness. So you're really taking care of the body because you care. In fact, the whole meditation practice that we do, this willingness to show up here and to take the class and to practice at home, See if you can always remember that you're doing it because you care about this life. You really want to take care of yourself in the deepest way. And you might find it useful to take a few easy but deep, full breaths, taking your time. Filling and emptying the lungs a few times. After the next long, easy exhalation, allowing the breathing to continue on its own, knowing that the body can take care of the breathing. We don't need to consciously control it. And we'll begin by receiving the sound of the bell.
Let's continue just allowing the mind to be receptive to hearing. Wide, broad attention to the sounds that come and go. Without needing to control the sounds or without needing to analyze them. Rediscovering the receptive quality of the mind. Whenever you'd like, bringing the same receptive quality now to the sensations in the body. Feeling this ocean of sensation in the body, pleasant sensations and unpleasant sensations, and all the neutral sensations. Willing to include, to be open to all the different sensations now. Seeing this clear, natural sensitivity to the different sensations in the body. And when appropriate, noticing the movement of the breath here in the body. Breath comes in, breath goes out. And just begin to note or notice each inhalation, each exhalation, just as it is. Being intimate with the breathing process without needing to control it at all.
noticing how the mind is. Realize it's possible to see or understand thoughts in an impersonal way. Almost like somebody has left a radio on. We're just hearing those impersonal thoughts or words in the mind. Just thoughts.
now for the last minute or so. Letting go of any formal technique. Let the practice be very simple. Being open, present with the body, the mind, with things as they are now. Without needing things to be different than they are. Allowing thoughts to come and go and sensations to come and go. Letting go of the need to control or fix. Even letting go of the need to understand. You might want to stretch out. Release any tension in the body. So we'll use this time like we have in the past to check in about practice and uh, the different aspects we've talked about over the weeks, being mindful of the breath, what gets in the way of being mindful of the breath, learning to be more and more present with the body. And in Buddhism, with the body, we're usually meaning all five of the physical senses, so seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting touching. It's just that in the context of sitting practice, the body is mostly experienced as sensation, as the feeling of tactile sensations. Also, though, anything in your practice around different mood or attitudes or emotions and thoughts that I talked about tonight. And of course, any questions that you have that you'd like to share with the group. So what have you been noticing? And please say your name when you speak up. I'm Kathleen. This is the first time that it seemed to go really fast. And 
that seems true is that human beings fundamentally like to learn. And when we start to relate to the world of mentality in this way, it's like a whole new world of learning. And we're like at a really steep part of the learning curve to begin to see thoughts as just thoughts. It's really, we do, we, we feel awake and we feel uh, empowered in a way. Because normally we go through our lives 99% of the time, if not all the time, really under the thumb of our thoughts. I mean, we just believe our thoughts, take them personally, act them out. But to begin to just see that possibility of it's just thoughts. And then to notice, like Kathleen described, how much quicker they go away. Because thoughts, in order for thoughts to stick around, there's got to be some attachment or identification. Otherwise, they don't stick around. Now, they may come back, like we may really let them go, and then they're really gone. And then they may come back, but there's real breaks. But when it feels like there's no breaks, like we're just there, there, there with them, it's because we're attached. So that's the key, as I described, to go from the thought to the emotional tone to the pain, like feeling the pain of attachment. That's what will help the mind to let go of the identification. Thanks, Kathleen. What else people noticing? Yes. Absolutely. I was, think, I was thinking that I was noticing that I was thinking about the classics a lot. Either that it was going well or not going well, and uh, it could be too different, or, and maybe that I had done two minutes and I felt like I did pretty well. Should I be pushing those aside too? Thoughts about the process. Yeah, that's a very good question, Julie. Uh, I used to call that because sometimes that aspect of the mind, the thinking mind, can become quite oppressive. I, I used to call it the Dharma coach. You know, Dharma is the word <laughs> that we use to refer to practice. You know, this is Dharma practice. The Buddha taught the Dharma the way it is and a practice that helps us realize or wake up to the way it is. And so we have that inner coach, you know, kind of. And to some degree, uh, it's appropriate to uh, give ourselves instruction but we actually don't have to speak it. <laughs> you know, it's like we already know by the time we are about to say it to ourselves. We already know what we're about to say. So it's, yeah, it's extra, basically. And you can just find a, a label. Now, we don't want to be hostile or frustrated with that inner commenting or inner dialogue because it doesn't help to get frustrated with it. But it, to recognize it is very useful. 
and with a sense of humor, a sense of lightness, oh, there's that Dharma coach, there's that commenting. Commenting is just like this. Just like, and we can, instead of like feeling we have to push it away or get rid of it, just let it be in the background. Because often those kinds of thoughts aren't so seductive. Dharma can get seductive, like to think about the practice. But often it's not so seductive. We just let it fall in the background. We come back to the body, the breath in the body. If it's, if it's going on a lot and it seems seductive, maybe there's some doubt about, like, am I doing it right? Or some sense of wanting to do it better than we are, like a striving energy. Then we can do that deconstruction I mentioned where we notice that emotional tone and we notice whether it's painful or pleasant. Oh, striving is unpleasant and it's like this. So to really tune into the pain of a striving heart trying to do it right. Yeah, it's endemic, thinking about practice. And part of the reason we'd like to think about practice is we're, we're genuinely enthused about it. You know, it is. It, it feels like, wow, this is really an amazing thing. So it is easy to think about it, but we should just recognize, well, we're not practicing then. We're, not, we're doing something else. We're thinking. And it may be, relatively speaking, wholesome thinking, but... We're not really developing the practice at that point where we've stepped off and we're just spinning our wheels a little bit. Well, I just wanted to ask you, oh. um, Kathleen, again, um, you said, oh, it's striving, um, and this is how it feels, and it feels painful. Well, might it not feel painful to other people? Striving? Uh-huh. Well. Yeah, it just depends on what you mean by striving. What I mean by striving is a painful, afflictive state. It's like not being satisfied with the way things are, wanting things to be other than they are, is a subtle or not so subtle kind of violence in the mind. But to be to be enthused doesn't necessarily mean it's it's striving. You know, uh, there is a kind of enthusiasm that's very wholesome, zeal. You know, maybe let's call it zeal or just energetic, there's nothing wrong with energy. Energy is good. You know, we need a lot of brightness in the mind to do anything, to be a parent, to be a meditator. You need to be awake. Um, So that's good. But to be somebody who wants to be other than who they are is uh, judgment, and it's it's constricting in the heart. Yes? BJ? BJ? Yeah. mind in general. I have a controlling personality in general. And so, of course, you bring that everywhere, including to your meditation practice. So one thing I had to do um, 
especially I was doing some retreats a while back, um, like in the 90s, where the the teacher would tell you to be here with your breath, to feel the breath in the belly. And it was just really hard for me not to be controlling about it. And I just, I was holding some tension here too, so that made it less fluid. And so what I had to do is I, if I looked directly at the place where I was feeling the breath, I'd inevitably start to try to control it, even if it were very subtle. So what I'd do is I'd look close, but not right at where I'm feeling the breath. So I'd feel my sit bones, you know. And I just sort of rest my attention, feeling that simple experience of contact or pressure there with the two sit bones meet the cushion. And then in being aware there, I'll notice when the belly's expanding and contracting, because, you know, it's relatively close. And, uh, yeah, I can just let it... Uh, I could learn how to let that just happen without controlling it by keeping my attention really on the sits bones. And then when I just... Hmm? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Hold it in the peripheral vision. And not in, because when, whatever for me is in the, in the spotlight, I tend out of habit, it's just a habit to want to control it, manipulate it in some way. And some of us have that personality. So the general instruction then is to have a more general view of the breath, not feel like you have to, like really focus in. Feel the whole body, like, and in the context of feeling the whole body, just notice the breath moving naturally without anybody having to do anything. <coughs> Thanks, BJ, for sharing that. Yes? Uh, my name is Emmanuel. Um, I'm able to park my mind quite well, but I, I still move a lot. I, I don't get bothered, you know, like, is, is uh, the meditation more effective or deeper if you stay still longer and longer? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, Yes, I think generally speaking it's true because the mind and the body mirror one another. And one of the one of the directions we're developing the mind is this quality of stillness of the mind. Now, you can develop deep stillness of the mind in walking meditation practice. So it's not, it's, it's just useful as a general principle, not as an absolute principle. Still body, still mind. But uh, so use it as a strategy, like the more uh, still the body, the easier it is for the mind to become quieter. But don't feel, don't get rigid about that principle. It's just generally true. So if, but some bodies, some people's bodies do, do just naturally have a lot of movement in them. Don't intentionally move the body. And if you're having a lot of pain or discomfort or just... Uh, strange or difficult sensations, then you might want to drop the breath and get interested in the different sensations in the body that are provoking the movement. Um, But if you're finding that the mind's really settling down and you're able to work with it, and you find you're not intentionally moving the body, I wouldn't worry about it too much. Just let the body move. Just be on the lookout whether you're intentionally moving it and try to tease that out by having this this resolve, just like we have the resolve to bring the attention to the breath, we can also have this resolve to just let the body be. And if the pain gets too strong, then to drop the breath as an anchor and to look directly at the pain with mindfulness, opening to the pain. 
And then if it's too strong to to make a conscious decision, okay, I'm going to make an adjustment and to feel that adjustment. So then it's part of the practice. Okay, moving the body's like this. Stretching out is like this. Feeling the pain go away is like this. Being happy is like this, you know. So then that's okay because it's all part of the practice. And you'll find, you know, like anything, if we just stick with it, even if in the beginning we can only sit for five minutes with any kind of stillness, after a couple of weeks it will be seven or eight or nine minutes. And then after a few months it will be 15 or 20 minutes. And after a year you'll be able to sit for 30 minutes. And, you know, that, may, that progression may happen much faster than that or even slower than that. But it doesn't matter. If we just stick with it enough, I mean, the idea isn't that we're going to do the meditation practice for six months and get what we need and then be done. It's really a lifelong practice. So, you know, we have time to develop the capacity to sit still, relatively speaking, for 30 or 40 minutes. It just may take some time. And some people immediately when they start are really still. But you can't judge your practice because some people are really still, but they're not present at all. And some people are moving all over the place, but they're quite awake. So it really just depends on the person. Yes? Kathy, um, most of my thoughts are boredom, which to me seems more difficult because if it's judging or something, I can feel less. Yeah. But mm-hmm. like, what do you do with that, I guess? Yeah. Yeah, and that's the key here is to really understand what the experience of boredom is. And I don't think I mentioned this last week, but it's a really good list to know, especially when you might want to use some noting or where, where you name what's predominant in the mind, and especially like things that are disturbing the mind. You can use this category. Did I mention the five hindrances for the Buddha? Yeah. Good. So then just remember, let's see if who, anybody know all five of them. <laughs> but what are the five most common things that will disturb the mind? Broad categories. Craving, so all forms of wanting things to be other than they are. And then what is its opposite? Aversion. Aversion, which includes boredom. So when we have boredom or things like fear, we want to see that it's a form of aversion. Boredom means we don't like things as they are. We're saying to the present moment, no, <laughs> this isn't enough. I want more. You know, I want it different. So that's called aversion. And aversion hurts. So that's what we have to see with boredom. We have to see that it hurts. Because that's what is asking for attention. Oh, this hurts. Instead of looking for something to spice up the moment, we actually, because we're practicing mindful, being mindful, we need to be mindful of what's actually predominant. So much of the more uh, intermediate practice, like once we have some stability in our sitting practice is being able to discern what's actually predominant. So now I'm talking about when we're having obstacles. So we've got the basics down and we're sitting and then we notice that we're not able to connect and sustain with the breath, which means the mind's disturbed in some way. There's an obstacle, right? And the problem here often is how do we discern what is actually predominant. Because when there's an obstacle, the trick, the, the uh, instruction is, well, pay attention to what, is it, what it is that's predominant. Because that's how we break the cycle of distraction. 
We have to look at the distraction. But we don't always know what it is that's predominant in order to be able to look at it. We think it's this, but it's really this. Like we think we're bored, which in our mind, in a superficial way, we think, well, I'm doing something wrong because I'm bored. But we're not doing anything wrong. It's just that there's a predominant experience and it's this aversion to things being the way that they are. But because we're thinking, no, you know, it's actually okay, but it's not okay. We don't like it. We want it to be different. We have to look at the not liking the way it is. So boredom is a mind state. It's not the experience that's bored. The mind is bored. The mind is, is in an aversive relationship to the present moment. And we have to look at the mind, which is more subtle than looking at pain in the knee or looking at... So what we're doing is we're looking at what we think is boring. But the boring is actually the mind's relating, the way the mind's relating. We have to look there. Oh, it's aversion. It's a not liking. There's part of the mind that's going, no. And we have to look at that energetically. What's that like in the present moment? And then it will open up. It will go away, like Kathleen mentioned. When we really see these afflictive states, they tend to fall away relatively quickly. We might need to see it a couple times, clearly. But then it sort of loses its uh, juice, doesn't have any fuel. Then something, of course, something else will happen. But, but that afflictive state may go away if we can really see boredom in its truth, like, oh, it's just this. So the other, so we have all forms of craving, forms of aversion, too much energy, like restlessness, too little energy, sloth, torpor, sleepiness, and doubt, skeptical doubt. Not, not this wholesome kind of doubt where we want to know the truth, we want to get to the real essence of things. It's like a spinning kind of doubt. We have a doubt and we don't, and we kind of feel helpless, so we just sort of spin in our helplessness. We don't actually look or do something that clarifies the confusion. Thanks, Kathy. Uh, yeah, Julie, and then over here to Liz. Um, and maybe this is boredom, but for like weeks now, I've been stuck on just planning, multi- just multitasking in my head. Yeah. So no, what do you think? Access the... to emails. How, what I'm going to do when I get to work tomorrow? What am I going to do first? What am I going to wear tomorrow when I go to work? I got everything planned out. So and what's the, the feeling tone? I'm like, great! I just I got all that done. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the emotional tone? Is there is there a consistent or somewhat stable emotional tone behind a lot of that? So then, if it is neutral, then really get interested in that. Because remember, when something seems neutral, it's usually means, sometimes things are really neutral, but usually, like 99% of the time, it means we haven't seen it clearly enough to know whether it's subtly unpleasant or subtly pleasant. So really look, because it may be a low-grade anxiety that's so common in, our, in not just your mind, in our minds, that we don't recognize it as an emotional tone. We just feel, well, this is just what it's like to be human. It's not that I'm anxious, but it's just normal. This is the value of having really deep states, deep moments of deep states of tranquility, is then we become more sensitive to low-grade anxiety because it stands out more because now we know what it feels like to be really relaxed. And so then we're more likely to notice when there's like a low-grade, got to do, got to do kind of energy in the mind. 
So my guess, just because of the things you mentioned, that it might be like a, a low-grade worry or anxiety, which is fear, which is a, a form of aversion, like afraid that we're not going to get everything done, afraid we're going to make a mistake, we're going to forget something, afraid that we'll be seen as incompetent. So, you, but you don't need to, you don't need to kind of figure out what it is. It's really you want to go right to the unpleasantness of it. Like, can you feel the unpleasantness that's independent of your, this particular planning you're doing or this particular worry you have? But just the heart feeling unsettled, the unpleasantness of the heart being unsettled or uh, insecure or unstable or vulnerable, you just want to feel that. Because, you know, we're animals, and as animals, we're trying to survive, and that is unpleasant needing to survive, being... So we want to know that feeling in the mind. We want to know that feeling tone in the mind. And that might... See, without seeing that, then all that planning and worrying makes sense. But when we actually see that and make peace with that yucky, subtle feeling, then we don't need to plan and worry because all of that planning and worrying was some way to deal with this pain. But there's another way to deal with that pain, which is mindfulness. But if we don't have mindfulness as a strategy to deal with this, these subtle existential pains in the heart, then we'll do all this other stuff. There's this great book, um, that it's called The Denial of Death by Ernst Becker. Anybody ever read that? He won the Pulitzer Prize for it back in the late 60s or 70s, I forget when or 60s, maybe even in the early 60s, I'm not sure, but somewhere back then. And it basically analyzes a lot of things as a way to deny our mortality. And uh, there's this basic anxiety of the truth of our mortality. So we do all kinds of things. We plan, and sometimes we plan so much we end up being the president of the United States or a corporate executive or a great artist or this or that have ten children and, you know, and they they each have their own uh, clothes and I sewed myself and we, you know, we kind of lose, we, uh, the anxiety drives us to do so much in the world and it's not even that we're doing it because we want to care for beings, care for our kids, it's because we've got this anxiety we don't know what to do with and so we try to lose the anxiety by doing more and more and more. Nowadays, it's mostly, we use it, the way we distract ourselves from that anxiety is we shop. We get more things. We buy another house. We buy another car. We buy another kitchen gadget. We see another movie. We, you know, make another friend. And mindfulness gives us another option, which is to feel the anxiety and to make peace with it, to learn to be at ease with that disturbance as opposed to running from it which tends to reinforce it and feed that pattern. So it's really good, like what you did, Julie, to see, like to begin to see how what's filling up the space of your meditation, it has an underlying tone to it. And then, now just to bring interest, like this is relevant. This isn't irrelevant. This is relevant. What's behind the worry, behind the planning, that's relevant. And to get really, and you have to like, the interest in that will quiet your mind down and then you'll be able to see, is it really neutral 
or is there some subtle disturbance or unpleasantness there? Where is it? Is it in the heart? Is it in the shoulders? Is it? Does it have a location? Is it pervasive? Is it everywhere? Or in one place more than the others? So you just bring that kind of straightforward, honest interest in what's really going on. What's behind this? Why is it? Why is the mind feeling compelled to plan? I'll have plenty of time to plan. Why now? Is it just a habit, or is there something driving that habit? Liz, did you have a thought? Yeah, um, I'm Liz, and I just generally this week my meditation has—I've just wanted to bolt from wherever I am, and I just get this like tingly sensation and this kind of. I don't know, it just feels like anxiety, like burning, like I'm going to mm-hmm. explode, and I just have to get the crap out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so that's going on, that's unpleasant, but I just kind of notice it. And then my, I think somebody kind of already brought this up, because um, I kind of do the rain thing, mm-hmm. recognize, accept. Um, well, you might as well go through it, so to remind oh. us all, <laughs> recognize. Recognize, accept, and then take interest in what's happening, and then non-reactivity. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think, well, now I'm thinking, so I'm not meditating because I'm thinking about this brain. Mm-hmm. And so I think you know, there's a contradiction going on there. Okay, so, so at that moment, now I'm thinking, what's that? How do we note that? Whether we actually note it in our mind or just notice what's going on. Oh, now I'm thinking. So she has doubt. There's doubt in her mind about the practice. So we want to notice that because we're being mindful. It doesn't matter actually what's happening. What matters is can we be mindful of it? Oh, doubting that I'm doing the right thing, right? Because that's what's going on. I'm doubting, and then and then just acknowledge. Oh, doubts like this. This is this is what it's like to be unsure of whether I'm just sitting here thinking or whether I'm doing something useful. And then, because when you go through the acronym RAIN, you're just as you remember each, you know, the recognition, acceptance, being interest, non-attachment or non-reactivity, as you said, we're just kind of using those words, those thoughts, to orient the mind toward aspects right there present in the mind. So there is a place for wholesome thought, and those are thoughts that turn the mind back toward being mindful. And then there are other thoughts which take our mind away from being mindful and into some content, into some story. That's not useful because once we're thinking, once we're lost in thought, then we're not learning anything. We're basically, we may be rearranging the furniture, but nothing really matters. We're just in the same space. But when we're aware of the furniture and aware that furniture is furniture, then there's place for real insight and transformation. And I like what you said, Liz, too, about like really getting to those places sometimes when there is a very strong fear, like I sh- like we're doing something dangerous. And so then we want to be able to comfort the mind. And this is, again, thinking. Is there anything dangerous about being mindful? How could being present be dangerous? If this strong feeling of anxiety is here, is being aware of it harming myself? And then if it is, if it feels like it is, then maybe there's a kind of violence in our mindfulness, so we need to bring in some more 
loving kindness, like, I'm paying attention because I care about this life. I want to know how it is. I want to be close. I want to live a life of being intimate with the moment, with things as they are, not lost in space, lost in thought the whole life long. So you can just sort of remind yourself that this is a trustworthy practice. There's nothing dangerous. And if it is overwhelming, then acknowledge it's overwhelming. Like, okay, being overwhelmed is like this. And then make a strategic choice. And I'll talk about the antidotes. There's some in the in the handout tonight. And next week, we'll be working with more specifically with the antidotes. When you can't be mindful of experience, what do you do? And the Buddha has some nice options for us, and we'll go through that next week. But just to kind of give you, and I know you've been around for a while, this loving kindness is a really good um, antidote for strong states of aversion or fear or anxiety. So when you can't be mindful of the anxiety, the, the experience of wanting to bolt, then bring some loving kindness. Even if it is while you're bolting, <laughs> leaving the meditation, you know. Like, I care about this life. I care about this pain. I care about this anxiety. May I learn to be at ease with things as they are, as they actually are. May this heart be relaxed and at ease with things as they are. So what we're doing is we're cultivating a mind state that's opposite of the fear and the aversion. But we're not denying the the fear and the aversion. We're actually using it to sort of generate states of loving kindness or compassion for what it's like to be a human being. And that can be really grounding. Yeah, did you have a comment? I forgot your name. Uh, I'm Ryan. Ryan. And your comments about going through that process of To fall into sort of the empty thought, so, so you're feeling anxiety. Are, are we using yeah. this example of this? And then you you uh, rebalance your mind in one way or another, like using the acronym, or in one way you come into a more balanced mind, and and you relate to that anxiety with balance, and it kind of opens up. Yeah. And what say again? What you experience when it opens up? You just feel like. Mm-hmm. I can see where it would tend towards dullness, maybe, but if you're really, I don't know if you're really enjoying it that moment. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's, I don't, I'm not sure this is exactly what you're experiencing, Ryan, but it sounds like it might be. There are deeper states of what could be called equanimity, I like the word stillness, that arise in practice. It's a, it's a sign of deepening practice. But it's very unfamiliar, so you may feel like you're doing something wrong when there's that quality of stillness or equanimity and the mind's relatively quiet. But the idea in mindfulness is all you have to do is know how it is. But it may be just that. It may be that your mind is sort of shifted into a more still, spacious, open awareness. And then just notice that. Now here, there won't be clear objects to notice necessarily. So that's 
that can be a little disconcerting because it's like when we have pain in the knee or when we feel the belly expanding, it's something relatively concrete to pay attention to. There, there's not so much concrete to pay attention to. What you want to start noticing are the subtle mind states, like to notice the peacefulness or to notice the calmness or the stillness as the object of attention. So you're actually paying attention to the quietude, to the stillness, to the calmness, to the peacefulness, to the equanimity, the impartiality in the mind, or to the neutrality even. So you can notice those. That's your object. That's what's predominant. So that's what you notice. Yeah. It's just because it's novel, you'll feel like you don't know what the heck you're doing for a while. But after a while, you'll get skill there, just like you got skill working with more obvious experience, like pain in the knee, distracting thoughts, disturbing sounds. We just develop skill. The more subtle the practice gets, the more subtle the skull gets. And that's the whole general flow of the practice. And now, it's not always going to be that way for Ryan, you know. It will be that way in moments, and then it will shift back to more, you know, kind of gross practice. And that's just how it is for all people. Even people, you know, like me, who've been practicing for 26 or 7 years now, it gets really gross sometimes and really subtle sometimes. And I still need to develop more skill working with gross experience than I have, and I also need to keep developing skill with really subtle experience. So we're just working in different arenas depending on the particular quality of the mind in that moment. Thanks. Any other comments? Yes. What kind of mind-body thing? I have this joint mind-body thing that's going on. That you I said joint? Joint, yeah. Yeah, okay. But generally speaking, I feel like I might go like, oh, my foot feels like small sleep, and it's like, okay, that's what it is. Or I might be thinking, oh, I was thinking must be happening at work today, and that's what it is. But a couple weeks ago, I was told I might need to have some rather unpleasant dental work done. And so whenever, whenever I, like, suddenly realize that something's going on with my jaw or something like that, it throws me into that worry. So I've got something going on where I'm aware of my jaw. And I'm also starting to worry. And both of those things together, it's like, I don't even know. I mean, it's not, it's different, I guess what I say. Mm-hmm. And just saying, okay, that's what it is, doesn't, that's like a big challenge. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's a different experience, I guess what I say. Yeah. Well, and it may be, you know, related to what I was saying with uh, Julie's comment, maybe something similar where that, feeling sensation rather in the jaw and then the thought about the dental work you're going to have you may think that well I'm paying attention to what's happening but I I still feel like I'm not connecting or that I'm caught but when you feel caught it almost always means you're not seeing what's predominant so remember this when you feel like you're just spinning your wheels in your practice and getting caught or not getting any traction, not getting any depth in your practice, it usually means that something's happening, but you're not seeing it. So one thing that can be very useful in moments like that is just to ask yourself. You can literally ask yourself in your mind, what? Like, what else is happening here? What is happening that I'm not yet seeing? We should never assume that we're seeing everything that's happening. Because our mind has so many, it's controlled by so many habits that what we notice is due to our habit, not what's what's really going on. So we're noticing 
the sensation and the thought about the dental surgery. But what we're not noticing maybe is that this stuff has revealed some deeper anxiety, some deeper fear, some deeper whatever, you know. And uh, that's actually what's predominant. But we're not used to seeing that because it's normally below the radar screen. And so we have to like bring a kind of patience. Don't go looking at the thought about your dental work or don't go looking at the, sur- at the sensation, rather. But just sort of have this broad um, sort of interest. Like, what? What's really going on here? Like you said, it's different. Well, what is that? And so there's something there that hasn't quite come online. Something's happening, but you don't recognize it yet. You don't recognize it because... You're not used to looking at it. You're not used to seeing it in the space of clear attention. So it will take a while. So it's good. Just stay interested and don't jump on what's obvious. Just it's like really emphasize the, as if you were listening into the moment. You're not actually listening. But it's listening. Listening is nice because it evokes that receptive quality of mind, which is so much a part of what mindfulness is. Just being receptive. Like, interested. What? And if there's a certain humility in that, like we don't already know. We know we don't know. There's something here, but I know I don't know what it is yet. So we're like quiet and interested and still. Like, what is it? And you might, you might discern, oh, it's this. Good. And then you look there. And if you, if it feels appropriate, give it a name. Oh, this is what's happening. It's like this. And then then the whole thing, the whole moment, might all of a sudden get clear. You go from confusion, which is okay as long as we know we're confused, we know we don't know, to very clear, ah, this. And then it's like we could call that a kind of insight. Insight just means we're seeing something we haven't seen before about the mind, about our habit energy. We're seeing something we haven't seen before. We're seeing something more clearly than we've seen it before. So we have, we say we have insight. It always feels good to have insight. Even if we're having insight into something painful, it feels good. There's something about the mind that recognizes it. It's, there's something deeply wholesome about being more clear, and the reverse is true. There's something deeply unwholesome about getting uh, more distracted or less connected with our life, with our mind, the body, with our life situation. It's kind of the cause of all suffering in the world is the disconnection. You know, we're disconnected from one another. That's why we can be violent. That's why we can be, um, you know, unjust to one another because we feel disconnected. We don't feel like we're uh, in this together. So our time is up. Next week, we'll work with the antidotes, especially walking meditation. I'm sorry, with uh, loving-kindness meditation. I wanted to talk about walking meditation tonight, but I definitely will next week. Please continue to practice uh, the walking meditation when you get a chance, like at least once a week, so you get a sense of what that is. And if you didn't get the instructions, I have them. And there are instructions for tonight on the table. So if you have some time to bring the black cushions in the middle down, that would be nice. And the folding chairs also go down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.